pray. Well, Father, it is our delight to be here this morning. We love the Lord our God. We love that he is our king, that he rules over us as our head, and we have the privilege of being his servants, his slaves, his representatives in this world to image forth the glory of God, to warn people of certain judgment, to offer them on behalf of Christ by his spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may we never be ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so, Father, I pray that you would grant faith, that you would put in the, in the hearts of some, some to believe what they hear today. Give them ears to hear and a heart that is willing to receive the seed of truth and cause it to grow and flourish and bear much fruit unto their salvation. And not just their salvation, but a changed life as well. Father, this is what our nation needs. We don't need more of what we are giving ourselves. We need more of Christ, more gospel, more boldness in our preaching. And, oh, Father, I pray that you would find us faithful. If you should come today, Father, may we be found faithful for the glory of Jesus and for our own great temporal and eternal joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here once again to talk about judgment. And you knew that was coming before you decided to show up this morning. I heard about one couple this morning who decided to come because they heard last week's message. All I have to say is, you must be Christian. This is not a message that the world or nominal believers want to hear. But this is God's word, and this is the next section. And we believe every word of God is true. So we return once again to the study of Romans chapter 1, where Paul has us thinking about the gospel and how the nations need the righteousness that the gospel provides. We learned a number of things about the gospel. We learned a number of things about the judgment of God, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But for just a moment, why don't we stand together and read our text for this morning. Let's read Romans 1. We'll start with verse 18 and go through verse 23. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Ever since the creation of the world. And they have been seen in the things that have been made. 
so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. We learned that the reason the Gentiles, or the nations, as I explained last week, why they need the righteousness of God is because they are under the wrath of God The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that means all men, all people. If you are human, this applies to you. How many of you are human? I never get everyone to raise their hand. It just bothers me. I wonder. I want to just talk to everybody after whoever didn't raise your hand. This passage fills us with a sense of urgency about the gospel. We must tell people, understand, they they don't want to hear what you will say. They need to hear it. It is humanity's only hope, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We also spent significant time talking about the elements of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. In brief, they are certain, righteous, impartial. They display the glory of God. They vindicate the righteous. They defend the weak. They punish sin. And they, that is wrath and judgment, bring about salvation. If that one confuses you, think of Jesus on the cross. The wrath of God is essential to an understanding of the gospel that Paul preaches. It is inseparable from all of the other attributes of God. You can't have a God who is only grace and love. You don't have the God of the Bible, if that's all you have. The wrath of God is inseparable from all of his other attributes. As we learned from one theologian last week, if God had no righteous anger and wrath, he would not be God, just as surely as he would not be God without his gracious love. God perfectly hates, just as he perfectly loves. Perfectly loving righteousness and perfectly hating evil. This is what it means to have a just and holy God. A God of wrath and judgment. To strip him of those things, to strip God of his wrath and judgment, would be to reduce him to an an impotent man-made deity who may be able to fret about sin and injustice, but who has no power to address it in a righteous manner. God's just and holy wrath is essential to his being a just and righteous judge. If he were a a judge, 
that did not punish sin, he would be unrighteous. So, Paul tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed. Notice present tense. Isn't that interesting? And I really haven't made a point of this in the past, but I keep meaning to. This is the wrath of God is right now being revealed. So the wrath of God is being revealed against the Gentiles, against the nations. But Paul anticipates that we will ask, why? Why are the nations deserving of the wrath of God? And in my attempt to logically divide up Paul's thoughts, I've concluded that he offers three reasons. And maybe you could say two, and the second one is, is really bigger than the others. That's okay. This is not an airtight distinction between one point and another. Paul has a kind of a free-flowing logic here. But I've concluded that he offers three reasons for the judgment, three reasons why the wrath of God is revealed against the Gentiles. First, as we discussed last time, the wrath of God is revealed against the nations because they suppress the truth of God. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And as I said last week, the one sin against which God is angry, furious, and wrathful, the one sin that is both unrighteous and ungodly, that is unholy, that is immoral. The one sin that provokes his anger among the nations more than any other is a universal sin. That is, it is a sin that is committed by every human being, no exceptions. What is that sin? Well, you know if you were here last week. It is the sin of suppressing truth. It is the sin of suppressing, more specifically, the truth about God. Now, I'm not going to re-preach this point this morning, except to say that the reason this sin is so offensive to God is because he is the one who made himself evident to us. And he made himself evident to all people. All people. You don't even have to have eyes that work to know that there is a God. You don't have to be able to hear to know that there is a God. God is not in the, in the business of concealing himself. Rather, he's all about revealing himself through his world and by his word. And so Paul says, what can be known about God is plain. It is simple. It is easy. It is clear. It's so clear, in fact, that there is not a human being alive today that is unaware of God's existence. How is the existence of God revealed to people around the world? Well, God reveals his existence by the evidence of his infinite mind and hand and in his creation, his infinite wisdom, 
His infinite mind is revealed in creation. The problem, however, is that the nations reject the evidence. They've made it a concerted effort to suppress the evidence. And that brings us to the second point. Why is God's wrath being revealed against the nations? Number one, they suppress the truth. And number two, they reject the revelation of God. At first, they suppress the reality of God. And, and now, they suppress the evidence that proves the reality. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, they are without excuse. This is interesting here, just as a, as a, a point of study. Paul is not saying that God's attributes are clearly revealed in Scripture. Now, there are probably more than a hundred other places in Scripture that argue that. But that's not what Paul's arguing here. He's, he's not talking about Scripture at all yet. He will later. Rather, he's, he's talking about God's attributes which are clearly revealed in creation. Whatever a person makes reveals something about the person. And that's the case with God. And what he has made is so complex that man is incapable of fully understanding it. All you have to do for evidence to, of that is watch the Weather Channel. They have 20 different ways of saying, we don't know. And it all sounds so scholarly and so scientific. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 19. Paul is not the first one to do this. He's not the first one to appeal to creation. We can look at Psalm 19. We already looked at Psalm 8 this morning. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Where? In all the earth. Everywhere you look. Everywhere you look in the earth. Everywhere you look. I mean, just look where you are right now. What do you see around you? You see image bearers. People that God created, gave life to for the purpose that we should image forth the glory of God. Everywhere we look in God's creation, we see God. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. This is really interesting because in verse 7, which we're not going to get to this week because we're talking about the creation. But the psalmist here is going to talk about creation first, what we call it general revelation. And then he's going to switch over in verse 7 and talk about special revelation, the, the law of the Lord, the word of God. But we're not going to talk about that. You can study that later on today. And here's what Psalm 19, 1 through 6 says. The heavens, now I want, you to, I want you to notice all the words, and we're not going to go back and review them, but I want you to notice, notice all the words, observe all the words that speak of communication. The heavens, here's the first one, just as a hint, declare 
the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. But their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a, a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Last night I was standing in the parking lot here, and Randy was there talking to his wife, and I'm waiting to get a word in edgewise about a hunting trip I want to take. <laughs> and I stepped over like this, and the reflection of the western sun bounced off the window and hit me, and it was like a laser beam of heat. And no kidding, I went like this, and it was gone. And I went like this, and it was back. And I said, Randy, come here. <laughs> and I showed him, and he was like, what? <laughs> well, I've been studying this this week, right? This is the glory of God. This is the glory of God. I mean, not just the sun reflecting, but why it reflects and how it reflects and how does it transmit heat? I don't know. There it is. When Paul, in Romans 1.16, speaks of the gospel, he is referring to what theologians call, at least in, in this case, well, in every case, he's speaking of special revelation. That is, special revelation is when God communicates to people directly, usually through the prophets or the apostles, or most importantly, through the scriptures. Ultimately, he is communicated to mankind through his son. Read the early verses of the book of Hebrews. In Psalm 19, however, God is communicating to mankind not by special revelation, but by general revelation. He is communicating to man in a general manner. General revelation is that term theologians use often to refer to the revelation of God in nature or in the creation. And so we can say this, the cosmos and every created thing on earth shouts to mankind, there is a God. And notice what the psalm, the psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day after day, it pours forth speech and knowledge. Of course, we all understand that the heavens and the earth don't really speak to us in words. In fact, the psalmist recognizes this. And then we recognize this as poetry, right? Hebrew poetry. And so they're not speaking in words. Nevertheless, what they communicate to us is unmistakable. Their silent voices cry out to every human being on earth, there is a God. There is a God of supreme and infinite glory. He created you, and you are accountable to him. 
Specifically, the psalmist says, the sun declares. He doesn't mention any other planetary body other than the sun because there's no mistaking the sun. Even if you can't see or hear, you feel the sun. The sun declares the existence of the glory of God every day as it rises in the east and runs like a champion across the western, toward the western horizon. Did you see that this morning? Elders meet here early in the morning. I was driving in. There was fog. And there was a gorgeous sunrise. And I just started praying. God, praise your name for your creation. Every morning, this painting is different. It's gloriously different. There are so many variations. It's never the same. And yet you give it to us day after day after day. And when you cover it with clouds, it makes us long to see it again. And we do see it again. And we know exactly when it is going to appear. You can get online. It will tell you the exact moment it comes up, starts coming up over the horizon. My son is in the Coast Guard. And we talk about the, the tides. And he said, Dad, they, they tell us, they have this chart. They can tell when every tide will start moving in at least a year in advance. So the tide that's coming in today was known about by the Coast Guard a year ago, maybe a lot longer back than that. How, how does that work? How does that system work. And it connects to the rain and, and the clouds and the snow and it's, it's called the hydrological cycle. Where did that system come from? Their silent voice is heard loud and clear. I think when Paul wrote Psalm, I'm sorry, Romans 1.20, he was thinking about Psalm 119 or, or maybe Psalm 8. Paul says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world through the things that have been made. Not through the things that have evolved, but the, through the things that have been made. Paul's not suggesting that the knowledge of God's existence and power is the result of careful deduction and reasoning. You don't have to go to grammar school to learn this, or high school, or college. Instead, the knowledge of God is a reality for all people, not simply for those who possess unusually logical minds. All people come to the basic knowledge of God through the created world. In the things that God has created, man sees God's attributes of omnipotence. You know what omnipotence? So omni is the Latin word for all, or every, or totality, omniscient. It's a word from which we get science, right? Uh, which just means knowledge, to know. He is omnipotent, excuse me. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent in the sense that he is all-powerful. His omnipotence, his omniscience, his 
divine mind, his eternal wisdom. All of this is on display. His goodness, all of it's on display. These things have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, verse 20. Thomas Schreiner so eloquently explains, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views or experiences the created world. He has stitched it into the fabric of our being. Jesus' exhortation, very simple. Consider the lilies of the field, how God clothes them. We would say, consider the blue bonnets that are here for what? Two weeks. And God clothes them. Consider the birds of the air. God feeds them. Psalm 104, 27 through 30, he feeds all of the animals. It's a wonderful passage. I wanted to read it to you this morning, but I'm not going to have time. And so let me give you the reference again. Psalm 104, 27 through 30. Why do birds continue to live? Because God feeds them. And there isn't a single one that falls to the ground dead without him knowing and caring. In Psalm 147, 8, he makes the grass grow. I don't know what's wrong with some of my grass, but it doesn't grow everywhere, but (laughs) it's a godless patch, I think. (laughs) Psalm 135, 7, he causes the wind to blow. This is not poetry. This is not a poetic explanation of natural processes. This is God's hands-on providence. He rules over all. When a baby is born, we see the glory of God. We see the glory of God. We see life. You know what we know about life? Life never comes from non-life. And the life before it did not come from non-life. You can trace that all the way back And in the end, you have to conclude there must have been an initial life that gave life so that we could live. Life never comes from non-life. There must be an original source. Where there is design, there is always a designer. Beloved, behold, the invisible God made visible. And by the way, God tells us these things for our comfort. He tells, talks about the lilies of the field. Do you know why? Because he's saying, don't fret. He talks about the birds of the air, how God feeds them. Don't worry. Because of God's providential care for his creation, do you not think that he cares more for you? Are you not worth more than many sparrows? If he has so clothed the lilies of the field, will he not take care of you, O you of little faith? 
Again, the reason God is angry with man is not because he has an information problem, but because he has a moral problem. He is born with the knowledge of God within him and the evidence for God all around him, but he chooses to deny the undeniable. He suppresses the unrepressible, the truth about God. For this reason, Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed. It may be helpful at this point to step back and look at all of this from the opposite direction. Instead of focusing on man's response to creation, it may be clarifying to consider why God created the cosmos in the first place. I mean, why why did he do that? Was he lonely? One thing's for certain. It wasn't that he was lonely. It wasn't that he lacked anything. For all eternity, the three persons of the Trinity are perfectly satisfied in the Godhead itself. God needed nothing more. He lacked nothing. He needed nothing. And Paul talks to the people on the, at the Agropolis in, in Greece, and he says, he's talking about the unknown God. And he says, we cannot, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. Nothing can contribute to his happiness, his fulfillment, his satisfaction, or his essential being. So why did he create the cosmos? And why did he create the earth and everything in it, including man? I mean, it wasn't going to enhance his existence. It was going to complicate it. The answer is hinted, it's hinted at in the first verse of Psalm 19. Why did God create the cosmos? The heavens declare the glory of God. He created it all for his glory. And not just for his glory, but for our enjoyment of his glory. fact is, this is revealed in in this psalm. The fact that it's revealed in this psalm implies that the people he created were to respond to the blessings of creation with joyful, grateful worship of the creator. What I mean to say here is that one of the first things you need to understand when you look at a verse like this is realize that it's a psalm. This is a song. People were to sing this joyfully, gratefully, worshipfully, because that's the appropriate response to seeing the glory of God in creation. When we look into the heavens... We should see the power and wisdom and self-sufficiency of God and respond with joyful, soul-satisfying worship. We might say with John Piper, God created the world with the goal that it would display his glory and find an echo in the praises of his people. Not for his sake, but for ours. Indeed, this is exactly what we find happening before the throne of God at the end of time. Catching a glimpse of the glory of the royal court in heaven, 
The Apostle John tells us that the living creatures around the throne, they never cease saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then in verse 24, the elders fall down before the throne and they cast their, their crowns before his feet. And they fall to the ground in front of the throne of him who lives forever and ever. And they declare this, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I mean, this is the end of the book. You look to the beginning of the book, as like some of the most important words. You look at the end of the book. I mean, a person's first words... I mean, how many of you moms will remember maybe most of your kids' first words? Which was grandpa, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> first words and last words tend to be the most significant. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the end of the book, in Revelation, you are worthy of adoration and praise because you created all things. You are worthy at the end of time because of what you did at the beginning of time. The creation sets God's glory on display, and those who bear his image were created to respond to his manifest glory with joyful worship over his abundant kindness, his eternal power, and divine nature. Can I just talk to you parents for just a second? I don't know why I'm asking. So let me just say I'm talking to you parents now. Okay? And you aunts and uncles and grandparents. Everybody wants to know how to parent, right? How do I raise great kids? Look, that's a really complicated thing, especially in light of Isaiah 1, where the perfect parent, God himself, raised rebellious children, right? Okay, that was controversial. Don't come to me afterwards. <laughs> Just an observation. You know what? You're not going to do everything perfectly, but one thing you can do, if you want to turn their hearts to God, you turn your heart to God every time you see something magnificent in what he has made. Say things like when you're seeing a glorious sunset. Isn't God good? Isn't God the most genius artist in history? Nobody can paint that. I mean, you can copy it, but the Lord just erases it and comes up with something more glorious. Nobody can keep up. He is of infinite genius. He's a lover of beauty and a creator of beauty. And when we see it, we should glorify his name. And we should do it in a way that your, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephew hear it. They see you delighting in it. Hence we see why God is angry with man. 
rather than responding to creation in joyful worship of the Creator for His manifest eternal power and divine nature, which are plain and obvious to all, they suppress the truth, they deny the truth, they bury the truth, as if by doing so they could escape the presence of God and the wrath of God. Now, having said all of that, however, we must be careful to remember that it's not as though Paul is suggesting that sinners should come to saving faith in their Savior by gazing at the, the stars or vacationing in the mountains or viewing the majesty and glory of the sea. Rather, his point is simply this, that the depravity of man is so pervasive in the human heart that no amount of evidence can bring about repentance unto salvation. There's only one thing that can create faith and repentance unto salvation. You know what that is? The gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Humans are hardwired to reject God ever since Adam's sin. As soon as the thought of divine, of a divine creator springs into the mind, his heart rejects the notion out of hand. Therefore, instead of ascribing to the Lord the glory doing to his name or giving thanks to him for the many benefits of living in the abundance of his world, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And there's a reason why that we'll see more clearly later. And the reason why is we don't want him ruling over us. You see, I said at the beginning, there is a God and we are accountable to him. He's in charge. We are under him. We are his subjects. We are the beneficiaries of his kingly rule. And he has invited us to join in that kingly rule by calling all men everywhere to repent and come into the kingdom of God. But rather, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We love our unrighteousness. We love our sin. Did you sin this week? I'm not going to have a show of hands because some of you won't show your hands. <laughs> did you sin this week? I know why you did it. Do you know why you did it? I think some of you don't know why you did it. Let me tell you why you did it. You know why you sinned this week? Because you wanted to. We suppress the truth, not as a scientific proposition but because we love our unrighteousness. We see this dynamic taking place in bold relief in, in Psalm 2. Listen to how the nations respond to the magisterial authority of God. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Isn't that interesting? And doesn't that fit so squarely with what's happening geopolitically on planet Earth? 
They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the nations, this is the rulers saying, God, we're done with you. We're tired of the restraints. Let us cast off God's authority over us. Let us break the unnecessary moral code of the Almighty so that we can be free to do as we please without guardrail, without boundaries, without consequences. Now notice how the Lord responds to the nations in verses 4 and 5. He declares, He who sits in heaven laughs. What? You're going to thwart the omnipotent sovereign God with your spears and your guns? He who created all things laughs. I was mowing the lawn yesterday and I went over three at least three unexpected um, fire anthills. And I could tell they were angry. And I could hear one of them say, Attack! <laughs> and the guy who stands over them pushing the mower laughs. <laughs> right? What, what exactly are you going to do? You have no power over me. God has infinitely more power than that over the people he has created. And then he continues, the Lord in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. But then he will speak to them in his, can you guess the next word? Wrath. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Therefore, Paul says, they are without excuse. The word here, I'm going to botch this, unapologeticus. You hear apologetics in there? I think in Latin it's apologia. The root of this word is the root from which we get the word apology, apologetics. It means to make a defense or to offer an excuse, which is why when you're having conflict with your spouse or with your friend and you know you need to make it right as a believer, you want to be pleasing to Jesus, you know you need to confess your sin, you don't say, I apologize. That is not an admission of guilt. It is just making an excuse for what you did. Paul will use the same phrase in chapter 2, verse 1. Do you see that? Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. In this statement, Paul implies that on the day the unbeliever stands before God to give an account of his life, he will offer his excuses for not believing. But no excuses will be heard because God has revealed himself to man not merely with sufficient but with super abundant and unmistakable clarity. 
You don't believe in God because you don't want to believe in God. And you don't want to believe in God because you don't want him ruling over you. He doesn't want you, you don't want him telling you, this is the way you should live. This is the way you should not live. If you live this way, you're in serious trouble. If you live this way, it will be better for you. So Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against the nations because they suppress the truth of God, they reject the revelation of God, and then finally they exchange the glory of God. Verses 21 through 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Friends, the ultimate reality in the universe is God himself. The ultimate reality in the universe right now is God himself. When a person denies ultimate reality, terrible things begin to happen. This is where the Christian worldview begins. It answers the question, this question first, is there a God? And in the Christian worldview, every other question gets answered based on that first question. Is there a God? If the answer is yes, then take a step to the next question. What is man? Is he only material? Is he only spiritual? Or is he both? Because we've already answered there is a God, and because we know God became man, we understand that man is both spiritual and physical. And you can get to questions about morality, like abortion. Whatever the answer to your original question was will determine every other question. The word futile here, by the way, means empty, useless, meaningless. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And the predictable outcome of such insanity is that man becomes futile in his thinking, and their foolish hearts become darkened. Even though these are the people who have the greatest number of degrees and who are highly respected for their erudite education, nevertheless, God looks at them and says, listen, your futile means empty, right? So your relative to the things that are important to the ultimate reality, God. Your head is empty. It's vain. Futility begins affecting the man or the woman in the way he thinks about the world and the people around him and even himself. It affects how he views authority. It affects his epistemology, which is how you determine what is true. It affects his view of life and law and science and race and gender and justice. And all of it becomes skewed and disoriented because 
He has abandoned his orientation toward God. You no longer have a true north. And so you're lost in the world. And you're just making it up. That's why Paul, or, or it's why throughout the Bible, the authors of, of the inspired text say things like, do not lean on your own understanding. Receive God's counsel. You remember when Jesus and his, his three closest companions went to the Mount of Transfiguration? And they were supposed to be praying, and of course the guys were sleeping. Jesus was praying. The cloud appeared. Moses appeared. Elijah appeared. That woke him up. And Peter had that great suggestion. Why don't we build a tent and, all, and we can all just stay here? And a voice came out of the cloud. The cloud's appropriate because when the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God showed up in the Old Testament, it was in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke or a cloud. And so this cloud comes, the, the glory of God, and there's Jesus shining like a pillar of fire, like lightning. And you know what God says to them? to these arrogant disciples who don't yet understand who Jesus is. And this, this is interesting. God doesn't say, sit down and shut up. I need to correct you on everything. No, 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 no. He just says, this is my beloved son. Listen to these three words. Listen to him. You don't know how to live until he teaches you. You don't know how to be married until he teaches you. You don't know how to raise children until he teaches you. You don't know how to respond to sin until he teaches you. You don't know how to lead until he teaches you. You don't know how to serve until he shows you. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Receive counsel from him. Do what he says to do. It will be good for you. And through you, I will accomplish, by that means, the transformation of the world. Many, many people, lives transformed. You will be not just fishers of men, but successful fishers of men. Then Paul says their foolish heart is darkened. That is, the light of truth begins to dim when they reject ultimate reality, the light of truth begins to dim and they immerse themselves ever so slowly into the darkness of ambiguity and nuance and subjectivity. This, my friends, is the very definition of foolishness. To make matters worse, as they descend deeper and deeper into the darkness, they all the while claim to everyone around them that they are purveyors of truth and light, claiming to be wise, verse 22, they became fools. The picture here is of a person or a nation who develops a depraved mind. They become incapable of knowing the difference between light and darkness, truth and error, healing and hurting, life and death. And they become morally brain-dead. Isn't this what we see happening in our nation today? 
Listen, beloved, no Christian who reads and believes the Bible should be confused about what is happening in our land. Our nation seems already swept away by what has become the new morality, the new wisdom, the new truth about how things are in the world. They have embraced futility. They have grasped the wind, and they are reaping the whirlwind. They have followed fools into darkness, and they have internalized values that are contrary to the heart of God who loves them. And witness the recent seismic ruptures in our society. Babies are killed in their mother's womb, and our leaders call it a fundamental right. And children are taught that there is no such thing as biological gender, and our leaders will cancel you if you dare to disagree with them on this matter. And colleges teach that there should be no boundaries on being sexually active in any and every way, and our leaders call that mental health. Some politicians believe that lying to push forward a certain ideological construct is acceptable practice, and our leaders call that truth. In fact, in America today, we have one major political party that shamelessly runs on an anti-God platform, and they call such thinking progressive. These are people who seem to love everything that God hates. Do you know why? At least once a week when you turn on the news, there's news about what's happening on Mars. You know why we spend billions of dollars a year to send these crafts to Mars? To prove that there is no God. Their code for that is, we just want to see if there's life out there. Because that would support our presupposition that there is no God. Professing to be purveyors of wisdom, Sophia, wisdom, they become fools. The word fools is morano, from which we get the word moronic or moron. And by the way, this is why Jesus says, don't, don't call anybody that. Don't say you moron. This was Jesus speaking to Jewish people. He's saying, don't call anyone a moron. You know why? Because if moron, if moron is, is a term for the fool, and this is what we know, the fool says in his heart, say it with me, there is no God. Don't say that of anybody in Israel. That's the worst thing you could possibly say is, you fool. Because to be a fool in this sense is to be under the wrath of God. And all of this is very predictable because in Psalm 14, one asserts this very truth, that the fool says in his heart there is no God. America which once was the primary purveyor of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, has now become a nation of fools. What do people do when they reject God, who is there, who has spoken, who has revealed himself, the God 
who has revealed himself in creation and in scripture and by his son, most importantly. Typically, such people don't become atheists. You know what they become? Religious. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of birds and animals and creeping things. They they don't abandon religion. They just create new religions that suit them with new structures that they can live by. Once you've rejected God, now you have to do something about the propensity of your heart to want to worship something. And if you won't have God as your God, then you will turn to something else. You will worship images, statues. You will worship Satan, the dead, or any number of practical enslavements such as sex or alcohol or money or fame or pleasure or food or control or power or anything else. Anything that seems to provide what your heart desires, that will become your God. Friends, this is not a picture of humanity making progress. This is the devolution of man. We are devolving. It's a picture of a people who are slouching toward Gomorrah and sliding headlong into into self-destructive depravity. And all the while, the Lord continues to call and invite and warn, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He cries out, come to me, all of you who are weary with the foolishness. It's, It's too heavy a load. Come to me, for I am meek and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Notice how Paul finishes his thought here. He says in verse 25, maybe this isn't the conclusion of his thought. He's kind of into the next section here, but he can't help but say this. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You know what the word blessed means? happy. The God-hating world cannot have any effect on God. He is just as happy and content in the Godhead as he ever was. He has a mission to save all who will believe through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he will accomplish that mission no matter what. And so even after all this talk, this is Paul, Paul's writing about wrath and judgment against sinners, but even Paul now can't let the glory of God slip from his mind. He sees glory in all of this. Everything about God's revelation of himself drives him to doxology. Doxa, glory. It drives him to glorifying God. It leads him to praise God for the glory of who he is and what he has done. And that's what it should do for us. I think it would be fitting for us at this point, at the end of a discussion of the wrath of God. Let's stand right now together and sing the doxology.